My name is Paulo, and I'm here with Frantic and... Hi, I'm Frantic. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. And uh, he's not that important. He's a co-host. Uh, <laughs> I'm living the dream. I'm living the dream. <laughs> he gets paid to hang up. I just sit on my ass. It's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> no, nobody gets paid. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. I didn't mean to get your hopes up. I trust me, nobody. I don't get paid. He does not get paid. And you most certainly do not get paid. Sure, <laughs> we covered that. It was anticipated. But, you know, we came here to have fun and enjoy each other's company and talk about some things. So, again, this is a very long-winded intro. But our guest today is C.E. Hoffman, author, musician, lovely human being. Should we have anything else for you? Welcome. <laughs> Did I miss anything? Welcome to the show. That's a wonderful introduction. Thank you. It's a lot to live up to. I think we all want to be described as a lovely human, but we all have our failings, which rob us but, that title. But <laughs> that's part of that's that's the human part of being a lovely human being, right? The lovely part comes from trying to be the best human being you can, and acknowledging when you've fallen short, and doing your best to not be that person again in the future. I find that so interesting. That's really the paradox of humanity. You know, when you start getting philosophical about it, it seems that there's almost two camps where either humans are defined by our fallibility or we're defined by the purity of our spirit. Mm. And it seems that they're just not mutually exclusive. Like it's like it is that paradox that defines us, that we have both. Exactly. Again, it's like, um, I mean, each situation is subjective, but... I always felt like, uh, you know, it's not like everybody makes mistakes. There's degrees to which mistakes are mistakes and to which they're conscious decisions. But um, at the end of the day, I, I would more likely judge somebody by their willingness to take accountability and make an honest, sincere change than to just live a lifetime of pure wholesomeness. Because I don't think, I mean, if you go down anybody's history, you're going to find something eventually that they did that was shitty. Absolutely. And, and of course, it's interesting how in some ways the internet is now enforcing accountability, which really needs to come from within. We all need to arrive to a certain space of consciousness, of acceptance, and like you say, also moving forward from it. And, and making sure that if you have the opportunity to offer or contribute to reconciliation that you do so. And I think that's just the process of ownership. And obviously it's difficult as an artist to balance those ethics with the creative process and personal promotion. But for me, I, I always try to think of everything as part of the process towards my individuation. And as much as obviously I do want to eventually get paid for art and there's material aspects to it. Ultimately, 
I think of it as a catalyst towards self-development to become a better person and hopefully by extension to help other people become better. But I recognize too that you can't, you can't even hope for that unless you're working on yourself first. I mean, like you say, I always joke that if you want to ruin a writer for yourself, read their biography. Because you are going to find something in there that is just heart-wrenching. Uh, for example, for a while, I was super into J.D. Okay. Salinger. Like, I had a transcendental moment reading Franny and Zoe under this big tree in London, Ontario in okay. the springtime. And the grass was all lush and the snow was melting away. And I felt like he was one of my soul people. I felt so mm. connected to him. And then I made the mistake of reading his biography and finding out that he had a proclivity towards very, very young women. Ah, that, that's a classic. That's a classic. Yeah. Uh, All your heroes are you know, That's, uh... Yeah, I like yeah. half his age kind of thing. And of course, for me, having been in at least one abusive situation that was exactly like that, where I was with an older artist who was mm -hmm. twice my age, having been in the position in the, I don't even want to say the victim position, because I think we all need to move beyond that insecure triangulation. But let's just say, you know, in the more compromised okay. position of that power dynamic, having been in that position, suddenly it, it just chafed mm. me spiritually. But as you said too, that is just the ugly, beautiful reality of being human. Yes. None of us are going to have a sparkly, clean backstory. And I think that's also the intrigue of the origin yes. story. And I think that's also why people fucking hate prequels yeah. a lot because it's like, you're literally ruining my image I yes. have of this person or this arc, right? And we don't actually want to go there because it's shitty for yeah. all of us. Like nobody, okay, some people look good in their Ubrook photos, but no, you know, I. I sure as hell. <laughs> not I, send the fox. I look like shit in my yearbook photos. <laughs> Oh man, I don't even like have a yearbook photo. That's how checkered my house is. You know, I have like no milestones in any official. Uh, well, you have this podcast episode. That's a milestone. Which is really nice. I think. I hope so. Every little. Everything you know, counts. You know, like every every little, little bit. <laughs> yeah. I. You have to celebrate everything. I think. One of the funny things about what we're talking about with artists and stuff is in some cases how fucked up somebody is is kind of part of their mystique or their intrigue and not like I'm not justifying anything in any capacity but sometimes we look at an artist like we look at somebody like uh, Charles Bukowski and we're like oh my god what a fucking wreck of a man but he was so brilliant. You know what I mean? Or, or um, I don't know. That's the funny thing about art is differentiating, you know, and trying to enjoy it and separate the person from the art. And can you really separate the person from the art? Can you? What to degree can you? And it's so true, especially in transgressive creative cultures, right? In a way, they glorify shadow, which now, you know, a lot of the Sipsum Lieben you know, is, is directing away from that, you know, saying that that's not okay. You know, we actually do want to modify people's behaviors in ways that 
are beneficial, you know, to humanity at large. And I think that's really what matters. It's like, to what degree does one transgress? You know, and, and the idea of retaining a moral compass in the midst of shadow and also that idea of punching up in comedy, which mm. I just love, right? Where it's like, we're going to be throwing punches up in here. This is yeah. art. You know, it's going to traverse boundaries. It's going to crash down walls. Just make sure you're crashing down a wall yes. worthy of crashing down. Yeah. And what's great you is, know? you know, some of these things, um, they create other conversation creators. Or they, they change the way we think about certain aspects of, you know, life or society. You know, like, it's a big thing about comedy. Like, comedy is not only funny, but it's, like, kind of sociology. And it kind of forces us to look at ourselves in a totally different way and be like, oh, my God, like, yeah, you're right about society. Or, like, you're right about whatever group of, you know individuals or whatever you know and it's uh it's really funny and and it also has you have to be able to laugh at yourself and kind of be able to take light in certain situations you know what i mean like there's certain things that have happened to me or that have been said to me that if i couldn't you know eventually laugh at i'd drive myself fucking crazy <laughs> <laughs> Oh my god, I, I love that because of course we all know the the kind of nature of PTSD, right? Where it's like the reason trauma is so traumatizing is because it's a novel stimulus that you weren't anticipating at all. I talk mm. about this all the time with people because of my complex PTSD. And laughter is a great way to mitigate mm -hmm. shock. It's a great way to see that. And it's funny that you mentioned that because I've actually been working on a new comedy set. I mean, I'm not a comedian, but in a way, I think it's just a kind of respite from my own writing. I, I, I think that there is pervasive hope in my writing. I think there is sometimes sweetness and quirkiness and silliness that makes me giggle, but it might not necessarily make a person laugh out loud, nor may it fully offset all of the wacky stuff that's occurring therein. And I feel like just sometimes getting up on stage and saying something silly and crossing my fingers that it's going to make someone smile is just a really fun kind of It's exciting. It's words. exciting. There's that moment of anticipation where you're like, are you going to laugh? <laughs> please laugh. Can somebody please, just one person laugh with me, please. <laughs> yeah, it's one of the most vulnerable states of being. Like, you're just like... You're just there. There's nothing. There's no band. There's no music. It's just yeah. like you. That's it. Yeah. Exactly. And yeah, I don't know. I've I. Uh, it's funny you said that you're you're doing a stand up or you were kind of playing around with stand up because it's something I've been playing around with recently too. But you're right. It's so scary. You're you're up there. We're gonna do it together. Yes. Amateur yes. night. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. Yes. Please come. I, I miss. Oh, I miss people so much. I'm sure we all do with COVID, yeah. but that would be fantastic. Like, actually, yeah, I so agree with the vulnerability aspect of it. I think it's funny for me, you know, I've dealt with bullying a lot of my life. And I'm like, is there some kind of like taking the power back here where I'm like, I want you to laugh at me. Please laugh at me. I'm setting this up so you do laugh at me. And I have, I kind of opened this set I'm working on, you know, talking about stripping a little bit and talking about how like, Comedy is so much scarier. And stripping, yeah. Because you're exposing yourself <laughs> mentally, not just physically. You're naked in a, in totally, a totally different, different way. Totally. 
And and I think you I think that nakedness also exists in written printed form. A hundred percent. For sure. Whether comedic or otherwise. I think it's uh and for me too, as a social introvert, there's the safety of it being asynchronous, of having some space between my projection, my creation, and someone's reception of it. I think that space between gives me a breathing area where you I can mean, prepare as an and like, like in writing. Yeah. yeah. Author. Exactly. Whereas, I mean, we all love yeah. stage work, right? Because of that immediacy. You immediately know the feedback you're getting. It's very intimate. It's very psychologically sensual, yeah. if you will. But, but I also find that, you know, having a bottle that you throw out into the ocean of consciousness, which I think is what writing really is. For me, there's something just so undyingly romantic about that. And then, of course, there's the chance that that moment will ripple past your own material existence, which for me as a writer is my my foremost aim. No matter how ego-driven that might be, I would love to be a dead friend. Because so many, <laughs> no, so many, so many of my favorite writers are dead. They're dead. I'm never going to chance to talk to them. They are yeah. gone, but they're still here. Yeah. And that's, that's magical. something that always got me. And like, you know, um, when I pick up a book and I like to read physical copies, I can't do like the Kindles and stuff. I like to hold it. And, um, sometimes I'll be reading, you know, I'll be going through my collection and I'll pick up something really old. You know, um, the great romantics like Wordsworth or Coleridge. And I'm thinking, I'm looking at what was in your mind from 200 years ago. Do you know what I mean? Like, I am t getting a glimpse. Like, it's really, books are like a time machine. You know what I mean? Like, they can take you to a period a place in time and like they can put you completely inside somebody's mind. That's so cool. It's the most special. I mean, I think it's the most special gift as much as I adore the immediacy of stage and you know, the surround sound experience of film, all of these hold so much merit. But for me, my ultimate love affair is going to be, Exactly that, being the friend someone can carry around in their pocket. Like I'm reading a few bondage right now. I wish I had it next to me. So I would just flip to something and read it. Cause it's exactly that. Like Stephen King describes writing as telepathy. And I'm like, well, it's one way telepathy. So it's really more transmission. Like you described it beautifully where it's like, you're getting to see inside someone's brain. And of course, then you get to see yourself reflected through them and realize you're you're not a freak. You're not alone. Other people feel these tiny, scary, ugly things that you were afraid to say, which is why writing again is so brave. Do you find, I mean, you are, I think you're primarily working as an author now. You, when we went, when we met, you were doing music primarily. Yeah. Do you, do you, do you find one is easier to convey your emotions? or to convey your thoughts? Yes, written form is easier for me, given that I am not physically limited mm -hmm. 
in written form. I have limits to my vocals. There's limits to sound mm -hmm. systems at shows. Oh yeah, especially the shows we and the like. <laughs> oh, worst ever! Like, okay, just stay in this little box because that's the only place you will get feedback. I shouldn't say that. Though. That's that's kind of disparaging. Obviously, there's some great sound people in Halifax too, like Gary Peacock is no, an amazing best. sound person. He's the best yeah, one. Right? Shout out to Gary. We love but you. To be honest, lots of the time we were just doing our own sound. Yeah. So <laughs> it's my fault. The sound sucked. <laughs> no, we know who Just like with men's, <laughs> the sound was coming from like five different venues too. Like or five different places oh, yeah. like all over the place. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. But yeah, I think that obviously there's less limitations with just a blank page, whether that be a computer mm -hmm. or a typewriter or handwritten in the journal. Though, interestingly, I think a lot of people almost see nothing but limitation in a blank page. So it really is about your proclivity, you know, where you tend towards, where your soul is beckoning mm. you. And for me, my soul has always been beckoned to that blank page, probably because it's in some ways the only place I feel there's room enough for my inner world, which is exquisite and vast and painful as fuck. <laughs> you get that on a t-shirt. <laughs> oh my god. I find well one thing too is writing um generally you do alone. Whereas creating music is far more collaborative and involves other people. Do you find that is part of the reason you kind of veered more towards um, you know, writing poems and novels, that uh, it was easier to kind of escape into yourself and explore yourself without dealing with external, you know, outside uh, pressures or influences? I mean, I love that it because it's a, it's a great question, which is founded on a certain presupposition that writing is solitary. Obviously, it is in the actual act of writing. Yet, I would argue that, like any artistic process, it's way more collaborative than we may mm -hmm. realize. You know, I, I mentioned this actually uh, in a, in a YouTube video I'm going to release soon. You know, every editor, every reader, every publisher plays a part in this, and not to mention our influences whether that be our lived experiences or what we've absorbed through other people's art or just what we've observed. You know, obviously this is an own voices piece. Let's and Horse is an own voices piece, but that doesn't mean everything's autobiographical. And, and the way that I kind of diplomatically assert myself as an own voices writer in the sex work experience is I say, many of these stories are either based on what I've lived, heard, or witnessed. Yes. Because that's a huge expanse of the human condition. And I think, I think lots of artists are very observant, even if we're not necessarily seeing things, we're feeling things, we're curious about so, things. Yeah. I mean, that kind of creativity is everywhere. Yeah, sometimes right? we, uh, we, we're like the great observers or like we're relaying a message. You know what I mean? Uh, we're telling somebody else's story sometimes. And... Um, that's one of the things I find difficult and exciting about um, 
writing or creating a story or telling the story, whether it's yours or somebody else's, is the line between the autobiographical and the fictitious or the embellishment, <laughs> right? And that's such a sticky... I'm sorry, do you guys mind? You're not here, so I might have to smoke this cigarette. Is that okay? Paid oh, for. yeah, I, I love cigarette smoke. And virtual cigarette smoke is nice. Are you me. lying? Yeah, you're lying. I'm sorry. Don't judge <laughs> no, me. No, I'm not. I know. This is, this is the problem I have is that I'll speak with sincerity, and people are like, you have to be sarcastic right now because there's no way you can like cigarette smoke. And I'm like, but I actually do That's like cigarette like, You're my favorite person now because everybody else is like, get the fuck away from me. You disgusting. <laughs> disgusting. I'm like, Whoa. I'm actually... <laughs> I'm actually lucky to have uh, two partners, one long distance to Halifax and one here. And the one here just gave up smoking. And obviously I want to support him in that. <laughs> but then I'm also like, oh, but I love how you smell after you have a cigarette. Wow. Oh my God. That's like the best, the most ideal partner girlfriend material ever. I love the way you smell after you no, smoke. I'm like, yes. You're going to love the way I smell after I don't shower for a week, too. <laughs> you should put that on the side. That yeah. is gold. That's oh my, my t-shirt. See, I don't want to be an enabler. I don't want to be. That is a t-shirt. <laughs> but I don't want to enable. So I haven't told okay. him that by any means. I've been like, good on you, babe. <laughs> a whole week. You so much money. Like, Because like, I don't want him to die, either. I mean, we That's all will, thing. but, you know, I'd rather not be a complication. I'm having a smoker's nightmare. My lighter didn't work. <laughs> no! Oh <my> <laughs> yeah. And you're not even outside. You can't even I know. Oh, I can. I am in my mind. You, do, do you ever yeah, feel... Yeah. <laughs> um, do, do you smoke? Yeah. Me? Yeah. I treat myself to like one or two cigarettes a year, usually to celebrate an accomplishment pertaining to. Do you, do you ever find that you have pressure, uh, being an author or an artist in general, to engage in substances, uh, and that you're almost <laughs> less, or people think of you as less of a artist or creative type because you don't pollute your body. Oh, definitely. There's a weird, again, that idea of that transgressive element where there's a glorification of shadow elements of self. Uh, and speaking as someone who does not indulge in any substances apart from that occasional cigarette, like I can count the amount of times I've even had alcohol in my body. Uh, yeah, there's definite, there's almost a certain suspicion, which, which is funny to me because I've, I've certainly been well acquainted with uh, self-abuse in my life in many forms. This is one of the reasons I live so clean. It's actually a matter of necessity to stabilize my mental health, you know? So, but, but again, so much of that has to do with other people's expectations and them placing those expectations of themselves onto you. I remember even when I was stripping, you know, there was... Not that a lot of people were thinking about me, but I could tell that there was a certain cynicism towards me because I was extremely vivacious and, you know, I was sober and I was, you know, and I, there seemed to kind of be this presumption that 
you know, if you're that sincere, you're either a fake or you're an idiot. Yes. Yeah. No, that's a very good way right. of putting it. It's true. Right. Look, you can't, you can't just have chosen positivity. You can't have lived like a real person and still chosen to come out on the other being side positive being compassionate. Yeah, wow. for sure. Yeah, which I think is, is sad because I think if there is any purpose at all to suffering, I think it is to endow the sufferer with resilience and compassion. If there is any purpose to it, that would be my argument, right? So why would you walk through the fire and, you know, and not become flame retardant? Yeah. You know, that makes no yeah. sense to me if you have that choice, which we all do. I yeah, think. I, I agree with you wholeheartedly and sincerely. I feel a lot of the greatest, and when I say greatest, I don't mean like in accomplishments. I mean like the most kindest, sweetest people I've ever met. I've been through a lot of shit, <laughs> a lot of shit. And the funny thing is about, you know, trauma and stuff, it can act in two ways. Uh, it can it can make you put up a defense mechanism that will allow you not to be empathetic and caring. It's like a survival instinct of like, I have to hurt you before you'll hurt me or I, or whatever. And then the other side of that is I don't want, I'm willing to get hurt to make sure that other people don't feel the same way that people made me feel because of their trauma. Does that make sense? And I mean, absolutely. And I think so much of this comes into boundaries, you know, where we, we tend towards this pendulum swing of our human experience, especially when it comes to our interrelations where either we're giving too much or we're not giving enough. And when you've, been impacted by trauma because trauma is impactful. It needn't break you, but it will shape you. And it will, we will tend towards any of those extremes because it's such an extreme experience in our bodies and our souls and our minds. And it really is walking that painfully thin tightrope of assertion where you're still going to be compassionate. You're still going to be open to love, but you're going to assert your mm -hmm. own needs and you know, your own deserving of dignity and respect. For me, as far as values go, obviously growth is a huge one. That's probably already evident in my intimations and dignity. For me, dignity is kind of the basis of my social ethics that really guides me. It's like, are people being treated with dignity? Are certain yes. groups of people being treated with dignity? And if not, how can we rectify that? You know, even just when it comes to educating, like I, I committed a faux pas on a, a podcast a little while back. Mallory Smart had me on uh, their awesome textual healing podcast and they're American. So they're very interested in my Canadian heritage <laughs> and asking me a bunch of questions. <laughs> I was exceedingly ignorant. They're asking me all these questions about our government and stuff. And I was like, I don't know. It's a democracy, <laughs> I guess. And I... Like a total faux pas because we, we did start talking about, you know, First Nations and Indigenous rights and everything. And, you know, I did mention residential schools, but, and this was like right before, the, you know, all of the, the, the terrible things started coming up. Stuff, yeah. Yeah. This was like right before it. It was almost prophetic of just like white ignorance in a way because I was like, yeah, like the residential schools went on really, really long. And I, I wasn't sure how long they went on. And I guessed that the last ones closed in like the mid seventies. And I found out that the last in one closed 94? in like 1994. Yeah. 
when I was alive, I was 96, see, and I'm still needing to correct my stuff. So like I was alive, like between my like pivotal developmental years, these institutions still existed and we're still impacting people. And I didn't know about that to the point where I mistakenly spread misinformation on a podcast. And I, I had a caveat on it. I was like, don't quote me on that. I'm probably totally wrong. It was probably earlier is what I actually said. So it's a big whoops, right? But yeah, well, the thing about that is, you know, um, part of it is, you know, the constant learning of life, you know what I mean? Constant, constant learning of life. And, um, also there has been, uh, you know, a you're willing to admit when you're wrong, which is the most important. The other thing is our educational system has done everything possible to minimalize and not teach us about the residential schools and when they were actually yeah. open or when they when they closed the the abuses like the horrible abuses that went on at those institutions but i mean there was a deliberate and intentional agenda to suppress those voices and make it so that you and I would not know those things. Yeah, I don't remember learning it in high school or elementary school at all. No, I don't either. Yeah, and like I mean, that's a a major part of our heritage, right? Um, and uh, basically, a major part of our as a nation of our of our our being wrong like very very terribly yeah. wrong and because yeah. you know, canada always plays like the part of like the nice country and shit like yeah. that so like when it comes down yeah it's like yeah um and then so yeah just to hide all that shit and then it's like this idea of patriotism and like politeness yeah it's, it's all like kind of like in the background yeah well, it's like, um, we, you know, we as nations, as whatever, we get this idea of like, oh yeah, we're great. Like, it's like, you know, America's the the classic example of like, look how great we are without like yeah. really looking at your faults and uh, things like this really force us to look at ourselves and especially like as Canada, we pride ourselves on being nice and friendly and polite and better than the Americans. <laughs> you know, at that shit. <laughs> but are we? Are we really? Yeah, that's it. See, I, I love all of this so much because I think this all comes back to trauma, right? Trauma is a shared experience, whether you are receiving it or you are perpetrating it. There is still a dynamic there. There's a relationship to trauma there that we're all owning. And I think one of the reasons that people are so reticent to discuss traumas of any kind is because of the shame of being a part of it at all. And, and always this idea that we're always trying to figure out who's the villain, who's again, the insecure triangulation, who's the villain, who's the victim, oh, who's the hero. And nobody, yeah. Right. Exactly. And nobody wants to affiliate themselves with anything 
villainous. Some people have a bit of like a martyrdom association with victimhood, which is something we all need to own. But when it comes to villainy, we're like, that needs to belong over there. That's one of the reasons minorities have been oppressed to begin with, where it's like, oh, how convenient. These people I don't feel an affiliation towards. I'll give them all of my bad stuff and own it. The othering, right? And, And I think the only way... I mean, this is all based on Jungian psychology. Uh, The only way we can, again, transcend past insecure triangulation is by owning the fact that the villain, the victim, and the hero exist in all of us, but that's not all that we are either. And I think even with this collection, Sluts and Horrors, it's... It's just like one part of my shadow, you know, sexuality, trauma, particularly relating to romance and sexuality and then sex work, which is still strangely, you know, a part of, of shadow of the shadow collective. And it's just my way of starting to bring my demons to light and doing that exorcism for myself and then doing that exorcism also for a group that I can speak for, albeit, of course, from a very privileged position Mm -hmm. as well. And obviously this collection won't be fully representative. There is some diverse representation, but I'm sure there would be certain marginalized voices in the sex worker community that would say, hey, you know, we're not represented enough here. And I would have to say, you're absolutely right, because I didn't live that experience and I wasn't exposed to enough people to be confident yes. in representing that experience without mistakenly tokenizing Basically, your Basically, it's like I'm leaving right? space for you to tell your story. You know what I mean? This is my yeah, story and my experience and yeah. I want you to tell your experience, but I can't. I can't be the one to say it for you because exactly. I haven't lived it. And hoping to just create a platform. You know, that's a really big thing for me. And even just a platform for people to start reconsidering sexuality or their ideas of sex work or trauma. You know, it's been really amazing. Uh, Lots of young female identified people have been giving me feedback about this book and saying that it meant so much to them to have a feminine perspective on these darker Mm. subjects and to really feel like they were being spoken for in terms of death and mental illness and trauma and self-harm and heartbreak, you know, and all of those elements to it. And that was so meaningful to me. And I think that's what we all need to do. And I think that's what art is largely here for. I think art is here to celebrate life and heal it. And I think it's that continual, beautiful Urobos, you know, that beautiful yin and yang of celebration and healing all the time. And actually, I'm working on a second short story collection now called Losers and Freaks. And that's kind of another exorcism for, you know, that side of my identity of, you know, really, you know, being othered throughout school Mm -hmm. and being bullied and just never really Mm -hmm. feeling like I belong. And then my mental health struggles come up more there too. You know, because I just... Like the whole thing with sluts and whores as a title, obviously I chose terms that are derogatory and I presented them as a gentle psychological challenge, maybe not even so gentle, you know, to like even the fact that people up until recently were continually mistaking this collection for a I was going to say, I was like, something that, (laughs) yeah, that's dope though. That's great. Like, Isn't that just the best mirror for people? It's like, oh, so that's what you, hmm, so that's the first thing you think of, eh? That these people are sexual objects. Interesting that it's all about sex. It's all about eroticism. When, of course, this collection seeks the opposite. It seeks to humanize, you know, and, and put sex workers in scenarios where they're not solely defined 
by sexuality or by their profession, right? It doesn't mean they can't be sexy, obviously, but it just is reminding people that there's so many layers to the human experience and sexiness needn't negate other aspects For of sure. personhood. And I think that's a, a really sad thing is that we, we seem to think that sexiness therefore needs to be incongruent with self-worth incongruent with intelligence, incongruent with having your life together, which again, I think just shows how much more healing we need to do with sexuality and how far we've fallen from the idea of sexuality being one with divinity. Yeah. And, and I really hope that this book serves somewhat to bring the goddess back For sure. into our sexuality. Well, yeah. It's funny. Like, you know, you were saying, even when you were, when you were uh, working, uh, stripping, and you weren't drinking, that that was a really big surprise for some people. Cause like people see you, right, as a sex worker and they think low things about you. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. You, you, like like, like not everybody, but you know, some people, you know, they will objectify you or they will just think whatever about you. And they assume that she must be a drug addict or an alcoholic or yeah. whatever. Horrible daddy issues or whatever it is, right? And and the funny thing for me is because I've always been so forthright regarding my personhood. Like I remember there was this one one dancer who I, I really loved and respected, and she always told me like, when you come in here, you put a different coat on, you know. And she was talking about exhibiting a certain persona sure. as a stripper, and I I didn't adhere to that, and I think I really was one of the few who mm -hmm. didn't. And as a result, I think sometimes my clients thought of me as an exception to a rule where it's like, you know, they would kind of do a Madonna whore thing where it's like, oh, well, you're not like the yes. other girls. And it's like, the thing is, though, a lot of them are actually like me. They're just not being as open about it because they're putting up so certain social boundaries with you that I don't feel the need to do because I'm just not quite as protectionist as per my identity and I, I want to be open and I want to help demystify and destigmatize sex work because gosh I've done not a lot of work but I worked with a safe space pretty thoroughly back in London which is a great drop-in center for sex workers it's a pro uh, pro sex work advocacy group as well I did a lot of work with them I've recently connected with answers here in Edmonton and I've recently been connecting with swap Florida in the states about a creative writing workshop for sex workers and I tell you like <laughs> when almost whenever I meet a sex worker through one of these organizations I'm just like why couldn't I have known you in high school? You would have been my BFF. You're like the coolest femme ever. <laughs> you know, like they're they're so often so so strong, so quirky, so sweet, so intelligent. A lot of them do tend to have lived experience with mental health or neurodivergence, which is one of the things that tends to call people to that profession because you can set your own schedule. You know, you can set boundaries for yourself, which unfortunately you you. You don't receive that in in a lot of other service work. You know, you have to just be with certain people and suffer whatever dynamics may befall yeah. that group. You know, a lot of them did live through bullying and and they've just had exceptional lives. And again, I don't think that them being sex workers needs to negate nor define yeah. their life experience. Of it's not a defining element. It's just another yes. aspect to their whole, just it's like the artist. It's not a part of the story. 
Yeah, I agree. Exactly. So, um, do you feel that you have, like, do you sometimes feel a sense of duty to your art, to share your experiences with these people? And, you know, uh, let them, you know, specifically young people, let them know that their experience is valid and that they're not alone in the world. Like, do you sometimes feel like this is why I'm here? to share my experience and let other people know that they can share their experience and, uh, and be okay. Yes. And first and foremost, that responsibility goes towards my younger self. You know, I loved when you described books as time travel and I think that time travel goes mm -hmm. both ways. On the one hand, this collection is very much for my daughter who I gave up for adoption but it's as much for for me, you know, for little C, mm. who was really struggling about all of these things and was unsure in their identity in so many aspects. And yeah, as much as I want to write for, you know, new adults and young adults today and anyone, Anybody. you know, in any age range who who needs this. Right. I think there's always a part of me that's going to be writing for my teenage self because books and music honestly saved my life you know i mean i tried to end my life right but uh there were many other times i wanted to try and i didn't try because music or literature offered me some kind of respite. i i totally i love the way you said that actually is that you know uh a lot of the art i make is is for teenage me you know what i mean like is yeah i really like that because it's i feel the same way i think uh sometimes when i'm crafting i think of the lonely little boy that didn't really feel like he had many friends and that, you know, my favorite artists, you know, when I would listen to somebody like Tupac, even though I had a whole very different life than Tupac, but, you know, I'd listen to my favorite artists, whoever they may be, and I'd feel not so alone in the world. You know what I mean? I felt like I had a friend. And I think that's a really special thing about what we do about crafting and uh, creating something. And you never really know the impact that it will have on people. You know, I'm sure you've had experiences like this too, where somebody has come up and mentioned a poem or like a line and how much it resonated with them. And maybe it meant something totally different to them than you intended it to mean. But you just see that you actually truly affected this person, and that maybe made a change in their life, and that's just the, the coolest thing. It's the coolest thing. It is absolute magic, and I think that that speaks to that greater truth that our art doesn't belong to us. Our art belongs to whatever channeled it through us. You know, the universe. It belongs to everyone, and it's for everyone to do with what they will. And not everyone will appreciate it or understand it, but that's fine. Yeah. One piece of art can't be for everyone. That's like an impossible ideal to which we all somewhat aspire, of course. But I think it means a lot more to really deeply impact a niche group than it is to, you know, just barely glance off a mainstream. I agree. Appeal. I agree. Like a, a cult following, if you will, or like a, uh, yeah. I, uh, I want to get into a little bit about the writing because we've just been... I mean, we've been talking about writing, but we haven't talked about the work specifically. We've just been enjoying the conversation so much. So, 
I have some questions. I swear to God, I wrote questions. I promise. You've asked some great questions. I think I, I love how we structured this, you know, that we, we did structure some questions, but we also adhered to flow. I think when Muse walks in the door, the last thing you do is usher Muse back out. Like you invite Muse in and you give her like the best of seat course. in the house and you just <laughs> let, let her do her damn her thing. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. She knows what she's doing, and she's the reason we're all here. Like, let's shut up and defer to me. <laughs> oh man, it's funny that you said that because I'm like pulling up the questions. And I'm like, shit. Now I can't find them. <laughs> Should have just kept going. <laughs> um. So this is kind of more about the business side. Uh, before sluts and whores, oh my god, did you hear that voice crack? Before, anyways, sorry. Before sluts and whores, you had stories and poems published in magazines and collections. But with sluts and whores, it was outright published as a standalone piece. How was that different in a business sense? Was it difficult to make the change from being paid like a lump sum for a piece? Versus now having to deal with a publisher and dealing with like royalties and things like that. Yeah, that's a great question. I think, especially for writers who are yet aspirants to become published. And uh, unfortunately, I have some pretty bad news that uh, single time publications usually don't give you any money. No. Uh, sometimes you'll get a contributor's copy, which is really nice. And but again, like when we were talking earlier, you know, about celebrating every success, I think if you really take artistry seriously, you recognize that you're building towards something. So when it comes to single time publications, that's building mm. your CV. You know, that's like getting songs sure. recorded or getting shows in. Even if you're not going to pay for the shows, you can say, I've performed yes. here, 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 and here. And it's the same thing with those single time publications. I've been published extensively, actually, I'm blessed to say, and pretty consistently since like 2012. So I have a, a pretty decent roster backing me up here. I have a pretty solid portfolio, which is one of the things that imbued me with the confidence to actually cultivate the collection. Uh, and I worked with an indie publisher, Thurston Howe Publications. I worked very closely with Cedric Bacon, my editor and publisher. Like they're an amazing person. You know, I, I respect them so much and they respected my voice in the editing process, which I think is so so pivotal and I'm, I'm forever, you know, indebted to them for that. So it was very easy, you know, to discuss contractual obligations and they were, you know, really amenable to any suggestions I had of alterations. So I think, again, it comes back to what we were expressing earlier about integrity and assertiveness, you know, self-advocate, be compassionate and open and flexible, which is something I still to this day struggle with. <laughs> Me too. Uh, but, but, you know, if you have a deal breaker, be conscious yeah. of that and work through that. But, but no, it, it has been a really smooth transition, especially given that this has always been my goal mm -hmm. is to release full-length publications. Novels are still my ultimate goal uh, as per publication. But again, I'm still working on this second short story collection, which I'm hoping will attract the attention of an agent and will just keep... One thing at a time. So I hope that that, that answers. Yeah, no, it, it yeah, does. One thing at a time. It does because, you know, we're at an interesting point in our careers. I say ours as if we're in, having the same career. But, you know, um, where I feel we're, we're at the point of making the transition from, like, 
really good amateur or like kind of professional to becoming legitimized and becoming actually professional and like really in involved in the business and it's a very difficult point in any artist's career because you're starting to navigate territory that's unfamiliar uh things become <laughs> more daunting and you're dealing with um different parties not everybody always has your best interest at heart uh oftentimes they do not <laughs> yeah a lot of people sell Oh yeah, like just record companies. I'm, you know, I'm thinking of some of my own experiences with that, and it can again. That's why self advocacy is so important, and and keeping your vision in yes. your heart, and always being informed by your vision. Where it's like, yes, the ultimate goal is to make this a career. At least that's me, true for me. me. But that's a long journey, right? Yeah, exactly. But we know that's a long journey. And what matters in this liminal phase is cultivation of self, self with a capital S, right? Maintaining your integrity. And I think what you're all doing, you know, out in in Halifax and Hollywood right now, I think it's doing just that. I think it's exemplary. You know, that what matters is building and fostering your community Mm -hmm. roots, you know, and lifting up others. You know, I'm so grateful to you opening this space up to me. You know, this is how we, none of us succeeds unless all of us succeeds. I really do believe that. And what matters are these connections that we're making along the way, because I know that as soon as we have the opportunity to collaborate again, we're going to reach out to each other. That's going to happen, right? Even if it's not the next project, maybe the next one, because there's always going to be a project. And that, uh, it is just about that journey. And, and yeah, and, Doing away with imposter syndrome, it's not worth doing unless it feels a bit uncomfortable or scares you. You know, like I've been, you know, you know just figuring out the uh, the fundraising campaign for the short film and things like that. There's, there's always bumps along the way that you didn't anticipate. And it's just like, that's fine. That's fine. That's fine. I'm learning as I go. Like with everything we've been discussing, we're yeah. constantly growing. Yeah, learning. if you really love what you do, like creating... Um, you're willing to do the journey, right? Like, like I'm not like, oh, well, I didn't become a famous rapper in the first year and a half I've been doing it. Like, fuck it. <laughs> I quit. You know what I mean? Like, I'm going to go be a plumber. You know what I mean? Which would, it would be way less stress. I've been joking around about becoming a plumber a lot lately. Or like a carpenter. Yeah, plumbers make bank. I know! <laughs> way more than this fucking podcaster ever did. <laughs> I'm so happy we had you on today though. I like part of what why we love doing what we do is because you know we can have these conversations with people that are awesome and that I feel or that we feel, sorry, you know, uh people should hear that deserve to be heard and uh, you're you've always been one of those people and uh, I'm very grateful to have you on today. I'm grateful for all of you. Thank you so much. This has been amazing. And I, I, yeah, I definitely look forward to seeing what you're all doing next in Halifax. And you as well.